teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, in response to Jeff's first question, how, how would you describe the tone of this first chapter? Pretty, pretty somber, isn't it? Joel here is giving a message to the people of Judah in the aftermath of terrible destruction and devastation. As uh, Tim mentioned earlier, Joel is the, the person who wrote this, who spoke these words from the Lord. His name does mean Yahweh is God. And he begins his message here to the people by summoning the leaders, summoning the elders of the land, and summoning the inhabitants to, to come together, to gather together. He asks this question to them, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Have you ever seen anything of this magnitude? Has it ever been described to you by your parents or by your grandparents? It's a rhetorical question with the obvious expected response. No, we've, we've not seen anything like this. The devastation and destruction is beyond even what our family and our ancestors have described to us of the things of the past. This morning we're going to learn from Joel. We're going to learn through the message God gave him something that, that God mercifully reveals to his people of that day, something that many of us or many do not get to hear in a time of tragedy. And that is not only just what happened, but, but why it happened. But before we do that, we need to take a step back. We need to uh, understand the historical context here a little bit and what, what has gone on, what is happening around the time of Joel uh, we spoke on it a little bit a couple of weeks ago and last week as well. And I wanted to uh, catch you up to speed on where we are at in Israel's history because it's important that we understand the historical context. What, what has been happening? I mean, Joel is not speaking out of a vacuum here. He's speaking to a real group of people who have gone through real experiences. So to do that, I wanted to start by maybe giving you a little pop quiz of that, that, that timeline, that Bible timeline. When I said that, people's eyes went boing. Not going to have you stand up, but I'm just going to ask you as a general group. Uh, there are six names and six numbers that I had asked you to memorize. I'm going to give you the number or the date. You tell me the name of the key person associated with that date. 4,000 B.C. Adam. Adam. Fifth, uh, 2,000 B.C. Abraham. Got a little quieter there. Abraham. 1,500 B.C. Moses. Excellent. 1,000 B.C. David, 1000 BC. Da it's David. Just want you all to see David. <laughs> you know, first hour got an A plus on this. I'll give you a few bonus points here if you can get the next two. Daniel, 500. 500. Ah, I flipped it on you. Ernie McCary, bonus points for him. 500 BC is Daniel, and then around zero, Jesus, right? Um, that's just a basic framework of the scripture, and um, the slide got messed up that I wanted to show you. It, it did have numbers on it originally. <laughs> just pretend all the numbers are there. <laughs> that little circle is between the time period of about 1,000 to 500. That's the period of the monarchy, also the end of the monarchy and the exile. That's the period of the minor prophets. Uh, we dive into them. If you want to show the next uh, slide, we dive into them. When we get to, if you notice here on this slide, between 1,000 and 500, we can see the, the judges or the time period before the kings. Around the time of, uh, around 1100 BC, it changes. The monarchy begins then and goes up until the time of the Babylonian exile. And you can see there that group of prophets. I showed you this before, but I want to keep this before you just so we can have a visual image of where we are at in terms of the history here. And, uh, you know, as we go through the prophets, as you read the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, sometimes it can be confusing because we see different names given for Israel. We see the, the words Israel or Ephraim or Judah or Jacob. Is it the same group of people? Are these different groups of people? And then uh, there are those terms as we look through the books of Kings and, and we talk about the prophets. We have pre-exilic and post-exilic. I mean, what is a pre-exilic prophet? What are we talking about there? And there are two exiles mentioned in the book of Kings. Is this the same group of people that's taken out of Israel, or are these different groups? And that's why we need to talk about the history here 
particularly history surrounding the 12, because as we look to the people that are being spoken to, we have to remember something. That in this time period, during the time of the monarchy, we're not actually talking about one nation, but two. It's because there was a split in Israel early in the monarchy, a split that, that was between the north and the south, right after the time of Solomon. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me back up. Um, if we go back to the time of the judges, who, you remember who the last judge was? He was also a prophet. You can cheat. Look up there around the time of the thousand. Samuel. Samuel was the last judge. And in Samuel's day, in 1 Samuel 8, the people came to him and said, Samuel, we want a king over us like the other nations got. God told Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And he gave Israel her request of a king. First king of Israel. Do you remember who that was? Tall and handsome guy. That's right. Saul. King Saul. But he had a little problem. He had a problem obeying God's instructions. And several times on several occasions, he chose to do his own thing. And so God said, I'm taking the throne from you, and I'm going to give it to a shepherd boy. I'm going to give it to a young man who's very good with a sling. Who was that? King David. David became king. And David, under his reign, he brought uh, Israel together, and his reign was profitable and fruitful. And then he had a son who took the throne, a son who was, became known as the wisest man who ever lived. His name was Solomon. All right, you're picking up steam now, guys. You're doing better. All right. His name was Solomon. Now, Solomon, under his reign, experienced great fame and fortune and honor. Remember, he'd asked God, or God had asked him, what would you like? And he asked for wisdom. And God said, I will give you more than wisdom. And so Solomon became king, the wisest man, again, who ever lived. But there's a problem. This, the wisest man who ever lived, the wisest man on earth, became also the world's greatest fool. 1 Kings 11 describes how he took many wives, 700 wives, in fact, 300 concubines, and were led astray. He was led astray to follow other gods and to worship them. And as a result of that rebellion on Solomon's part, God said, under the reign of your son, the nation is going to be divided. And as a result of that, under Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, that's exactly what happened. Now, when Rehoboam took the throne, how it, how it came about was, as he uh, came into power, the people came to him and said, Rehoboam, your dad was hard on us. He had us building all that stuff. Uh, we're tired. Give us a break. Ease up on us a little bit, okay? Well, Rehoboam ignored the advice of Solomon's advisors and listened to his buddies. He went back to the people and said, I am not going to ease your load. I'm going to make it heavier. And so as a result, the people rebelled. Ten northern tribes of Israel broke away, and they made Jeroboam, the uh, servant of one of Solomon's servants and leaders, uh, they made him king. And Rehoboam ended up with the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and also the Levites stayed. And that southern region was now known as the nation of Judah. And the northern region was known as the nation of Israel. So when you're in Kings or Chronicles or in the prophets and you see Israel or Judah, know that it's talking about the north or south. Also, too, the north was called Ephraim, which is the most southern tribe of the northern section. Uh, you may see that as well. And so here we have a nation. If you could show the next slide, I just depict this visually. Here we have a nation out that the, the dashed line is where the split took place after Solomon died in the reign of Rehoboam. Jeroboam was the king of the north. We're not going to talk about the northern kings right now. They'll come up later when we hit Hosea. They were really a, a sordid bunch of individuals, uh, all of them evil and wicked, particularly Ahab, who I did a note up there. Ahab comes into play as we will talk about uh, Joel's time period in a minute. Judah's kings, on the other hand, were a mixed bag. There were several that were very good and several that were very wicked. Rehoboam was wicked. Rehoboam's son as well, Abijah, was evil. Scripture talks about they were evil. They did what was wrong. But Asa and Jehoshaphat, Asa was Abijah's son, Jehoshaphat was his son, they were described as godly kings. In fact, for 60 years under their reign, Judah experienced blessing as they worshiped and obeyed the Lord. But then comes Jehoram. We talked about him a little bit last week under, when we were talking about Obadiah. Jehoram, Jehoram was a scoundrel. What happened was Jehoram, he ended up marrying the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel in order to form an alliance so that there would be peace between the north and the south. Well, we know a little bit about Ahab and Jezebel, don't we? Not a family you'd really want to marry into. 
Well, and it even says that in 2 Kings 8, that, uh, that Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord, committed great wickedness because Athaliah, that was her name, was his wife. And so under Jehoram, the people went into idol worship, just as Ahab had done in Israel, in the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, did no better. 2 Chronicles 22.3 says that he was just as wicked, and the reason for that wickedness was because he uh, listened to the counsel of his mother, Athaliah, and also her family, Ahab, Jezebel, and the rest. And so Israel now experiences a period of some 20 years of rebellion and wickedness and idol worship against the Lord God. Ahaziah's reign lasted only two years. After him... As he died, right after he died, Athaliah, his mother, did what any doting grandmother would do. She went and killed all of his sons. She wanted the throne. So she wiped out her son's children, except for one, little baby Joash. That little child was saved by his aunt, his aunt Jehoshabeth, who happened to be the wife of the priest. And she took him before Athaliah uh, found him, took him into the temple and hid him. Good place to hide him because Athaliah would never show her face in the temple. <laughs> so he, she hid him there, Joash, and her husband Jehoiada, who was a godly man, a godly high priest, he and his wife Jehoshabeth raised this little boy. And they had spent six years with him in hiding. And after the six years under the reign of the wicked queen, Athaliah, Jehoiada rallied Judah, rallied the military, rallied the people around Joash, the rightful and true king, and they held a coronation for him and crowned him as king at seven years old. Now at that age, Jehoiada and the other leaders would obviously have a strong influence and provide direction for Joash. And it is likely in the early reign of Joash when the prophet Joel came on the scene, when there was a huge calamity that took place. And I say that because at the beginning of Joel, remember, he addresses the elders and the, and the inhabitants of the land. He doesn't mention a king. Also, too, as we read through Joel, we see that the priests are mentioned frequently and seem to have a, a lot of influence and authority within the book. And this would match the situation and the circumstances surrounding Joash when he was young, that the people had gone through a time period of rebellion, and now they had a young king who was under the uh, who was being influenced and led by Jehoiada the priest and, and others. In fact, 2 Chronicles 23 tells of Jehoiada's influence on both the people and on the king. So if you could show the next slide. Now, some people place uh, Joel later on after the Babylonian exile, but uh, for the reasons I mentioned, and, and also because Joel is placed early in the Old Testament canon uh, with the first six prophets, also to the, to the enemies that are described in Joel are enemies from Israel early on in the monarchy period. Uh, you don't see the uh, nations of Babylon, Persia, or Assyria mentioned here, which were nations that uh, were toward the exile and after. And also, too, Joel was accepted as an early prophet by the Jewish tradition as early as 300 B.C. So I believe Joel and the events that took place in his book were probably in the time of Joash, maybe even a little earlier. But we can't be 100% certain about when, but we can be 100% certain about what. Because Joel is very clear in his description of the calamity that befell Judah in Joel 1.4. What was it that hit the people of Judah in their day? It's a plague, right? A plague of locusts. He says in verse 4, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Well, even in reading that, there's this feel of wave after wave of these insects bringing devastation on the land. It's a dreaded plague. And we know of plagues, we know of natural disasters, that they aren't natural, are they? It wasn't if nature uh, conjured up on its own as an independent entity, entity and decided to bring a horde of bugs upon the land of Judah, right? No, we know that this came by the hand of God. And in fact, Joel says that later on in his message. Which brings the question, well, why would God bring such a tragic event on his chosen people? And what were they supposed to do in light of it? And how does it pertain to us today? Well, it all has to do with God's correction. And we'll answer these questions in Joel 1 as we look at the intensity of God's correction and also the intention of God's correction. 
verses 2 to 12 give a vivid picture of the intensity of God's correction upon Judah. For Joel paints here in vivid detail the complete devastation that was wrought by this horde of, excuse me, insects. A horde, an impact, a destruction that had never been seen before. And rather than begin his message by just saying, you know, Joel didn't just open up by saying, yeah, we've been hit by a plague here of locusts. He, he has term after term describing what these locusts were doing, gnawing and, and swarming and stripping locusts that had attacked the land. Some say he's describing four kinds of locusts here, but there are many other terms actually in Hebrew that describe locusts. I don't think he's identifying different types. Some uh, indicate that he's describing the four stages or the life cycle of the locusts. Um, I'm not an entomologist, but I did do a little uh, study of these things, and I found that there are a few different stages in the growth cycle. The locusts begin as these little ant-sized creatures called hoppers, and they do exactly as the word says. They hop around, and what are they hopping around for? Looking for food, right? Like any infant. I'm hungry. I want to eat. And so they look around for something to eat, and as they grow bigger... They grow larger. These are basically grasshoppers, by the way. They grow larger. Before their wings come to maturity, about four weeks later, they're almost adult size. And they not just hop, but they can run and they can eat a lot more. About two weeks after that is when the locusts develop uh, fully mature wings and they're able to fly, which makes them even more devastating. I don't think Joel here is describing the, the four stages or, or four different stages of growth here, I think we have to remember something. And we have to remember that Joel is speaking prophetic, or, uh, uh, poetically here. Right? We're reading not a narrative, we're reading a poem. Much of Hebrew prophecy is given in the form of poetry, Hebrew poetry. And here Joel is simply describing the devastation and, and making an emphatic statement about the devastation in a poetic way. And he's describing these locusts that, you know, some of them crawl slowly, some quickly, some fly, but all of them eat. And they eat voraciously. Some have said this chapter isn't speaking of a literal plague, but is an allegory of the enemies of Israel coming in. Some have compared these four locust terms to uh, Babylon and Persia and Greece and, and Rome. But just read the chapter. What's he describing here? In great detail, the impact that it has had on the vegetation, all forms of vegetation. No, this is a literal plague that happened upon the land of Judah. In fact, as you read this chapter, I read many accounts of various plagues that have happened through history, very similar. In fact, one observer of a 16th century plague described a swarm of locusts and how one morning he got up and this swarm had come in upon the land. By the next morning, they were gone and the land was essentially barren. And then the very next day, another swarm came through and ate up whatever little crumbs were left. Same picture as verse 4 here, wave after wave coming through. An eyewitness of an 1845 plague in Palestine, uh, he described this large mass of locusts as they were marching through the land, and, and it was green before and brown after. And, and he describes how when they got to certain building structures, they didn't go around them. They climbed up the wall and over them. Just this black mass. 1915 was another plague in Palestine. National Geographic actually wrote an article on that plague. And the, the author there, John Whiting, described how in the middle of the day, the swarm was so massive and dense, it blackened out the sun. Locusts can swarm in areas over hundreds of square miles. I don't know if you realize there was a time in the United States called the Year of the Locusts, 1875, where over central United States, there was a massive swarm that took place. Locusts aren't just a problem of the past either. Right now, today, there is a huge swarm in Madagascar. Over half of the land has been infested. Just 10 years ago, Morocco had a swarm over 120 miles long. Several billion locusts. Average locust swarm contains probably somewhere around 100 million locusts per square mile. And that, those 100 million locusts can consume the, the same amount of food as 100,000 people. Charles Feinberg said, locusts have been called the incarnation of hunger. And in Joel's prophecy, we are given his eyewitness account of a massive plague that had come upon Judah. And as he describes the devastation there in great detail, he, he addresses various groups within the community. And notice the irony of the first group he addresses in verse 5 when he says, Awake drunkards and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. 
It's as if the, the crowd that's before him and, and the, those that are, are imbibe and, and drink and get drunk, he says, hey, wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor. It's gone. Every bottle you're looking for is empty. In fact, there's no new wine either, no fresh wine, because the grapes have been consumed. You'll never taste it, for the vine has been utterly destroyed. And Joel then gives a, a graphic depiction of the consumption by comparing this swarm to a nation, an invading nation that is sawing and tearing and shredding at the vineyards until there's nothing left. In fact, their consumption here is so thorough that Joel says the branches were, were stripped completely bare until they were white. Which is interesting, that article I spoke about from National Geographic, the author also gives a description of what he saw when he says, When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off the young topmost branches, which, after exposure to the sun, were bleached snow white. He saw the same thing, just like Joel observed it. The Romans called locusts the burners of the land. It wasn't just the vineyards that were consumed here. If you look at verse 10, Joel says, the fields are ruined, and he uses a word play here. He uses two words uh, together that sound very similar, the word for field and the word for ruin. Hebrew phrase is sudat zedeh, or literally, ruined is the field. And he does that to bring attention and emphasis upon the impact of the plague, and then he follows that up with these quick-hitting descriptions where he says, the field ruined, the land mourns, the grain ruined, the new, dry, new wine dried up, the olive oil wasted away. Because of this, he tells the farmers, be ashamed, in verse 11. It's this idea of, a, you know, if you went over to a farmer's house and he, you went out the back door to look at his land and it's parched and there's nothing there, there's no crop to harvest, he'd be pretty embarrassed. All of his work for nothing. And so Joel says, be ashamed, O farmers. And then he tells the vine dressers to wail. Those hired hands who were to go out and, and pick the grapes, they were to wail or cry out as well because there was nothing to pick. He says in verse 12 that the vineyards have dried up, that even the fruit trees have dried up. In fact, this term dried up is repeated six different times in verses 10 through 20, three times in verse 12 alone. It's this picture of, you know, I just want something to drink right now, as many times as he's mentioned this word dry up. And we learn later in verses 19 to 20, the land was also hit by a drought. So not only had the locusts wiped everything out, but there was no water to replenish these plants. It's very devastating, and that's why they, they looked as the fields looked as if they'd been burned by fire. It was so dry. But you see, the problem wasn't just that the vine dressers had nothing to pick, or that the farmers had nothing to harvest, or that the drunkards had nothing to get drunk on. But go back to verse 9, because it's there that we see the people's ability even to participate in temple worship as God had designed it had been prevented. Joel says at the beginning of verse 9 that the grain offering and the libation or drink offering are cut off. And Jeff mentioned these earlier when he talked about these were means in which people would come to give God. They were to be given as tributes or as gifts or as expressions of submission or gratitude. Be much similar to our offering that we provide that we give as worship to the Lord as well. And Joel's saying here that there's nothing to give. There's nothing you can bring to worship God with anymore. There's no way to express the gratitude and thanksgiving and, and the submission for which these gifts communicate because it's gone. There's no wine to bring for a drink offering. There's no grain, no wheat, no barley that you could bring for a grain offering. He makes this point emphatic. Three times, he says in verses 9, 10, and 13, they had no grain. Three times, he says in verses 5, 10, and 12, there's no wine. There's nothing to bring for a drink offering. Their privilege to worship God in these ways has been eliminated. <clears throat> and so as we move through verses 5 to 12, we, we see this progression from bad to worse. 5 through 7, he talks about the, the luxuries of life have been curtailed. Then in verses 8 through 10, he talks about how their worship has been constrained. And then in verses 11 to 12, their very lives were at stake and threatened because there was no food. Look at verse 16. He gives further description when he says, Has not food been cut off from before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down. The grain is dried up. Not only do they not have any crops now, they don't have anything for the future. There's nothing left. 
So no wonder the tone here is one of great despair and, and anguish and sorrow. That's why he repeats this injunction over and over, wail. That's this idea to, to howl, to, to cry out in sorrow and anguish. Some of you may have been a little startled as Jeff was reading, and he kind of sometimes kind of raised his voice pretty loud, right? I guess I do that too. But that's really consistent with what the prophet Joel was saying. He was saying, cry out, howl like an animal in despair. Wail, you wine drinkers. Be distressed or ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers. Wail, ministers of God. Then in verse 8, he describes this picture represents harsh pain and bitterness. He describes there, he says, a virgin or a young woman girded with sackcloth to wail like such a woman for the bridegroom of her youth. And what was sackcloth often used for? A good Old Testament word. It was based, made of goat's hair, very coarse and rough. People would put it on as a, a way to show mourning or a sign of, of, uh, uh, of anguish, lamenting. Recognition of wrong done, or oftentimes in the case of someone's death. This is what the picture is here. It's of a, a young woman who's um, uh, either she's engaged or they've newly been married and her bridegroom has died. We had a wedding here yesterday. Um, how Kelly married Amy Stone. And I was thinking about this passage and thinking, you know, what, how would Amy have felt if she walked down the aisle and found out Hal had died? That's exactly the feeling that Joel's communicating here. Bitter pain and anguish. Joel says that this degree of sorrow was exactly how the people of Judah were feeling and were to feel. And again, he isn't just focusing on the physical conditions of this plague. His concern is the spiritual conditions which brought it. That term cut off in verse 9, that's the same word that's used for making a covenant. In the Old Testament, it usually is literally cut a covenant. I think he's using that specifically here to, to talk about the fact that it's, not, it's your relationship with God that has been affected here. And there's a tangible way it's been affected in that there's nothing to bring to offer him. And that should be a, a, a sign, a signal to you that there's something that's happened in the relationship here. People are in dire straits. This is a time of mourning and weeping and sorrow. And that's exactly how verse 12 ends. He said that indeed rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Everything else is dried up, literally, and so too that has resulted in joy and rejoicing being sapped out of the people. It has been dried up as well. And as Joel stands there, again, picture the scene. He stands there in front of the barren lands. The people, as they're listening to him, they're looking around. They see what's happened. They've experienced what happened. And Joel is telling them to mourn their loss, and he's not doing so simply that they would pray for help. He has another message that he's been commissioned to bring. For this accident, or this situation was no freak accident. This was no random series of events that just happened. The, the timing was right. The, the, the elements, the temperature, everything just came together, and it, the timing was right for this plague. No, no, there's another reason behind it. Go over to chapter 2 for a minute in Joel 2, verse 25. This is in the midst of a section where God is promising restoration for his people, but in that promise, he also reveals the source of this terrible plague. In verse 25 of Joel 2, he says this, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. Where did this great swarm come from? Mother Nature? Is this a great uh, physical phenomenon, a, a natural disaster? No, God says that this massive devastation came by his hand, that he brought this insect army, that he is the one who sent this disaster upon Judah. All right, we know Scripture teaches God's sovereignty in all things. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and in all the deeps. This tells us he brings us blessings and trials. He brings times of enjoyment and times of struggle. God brings the beautiful day as well as the dark one. He brings the serene sunset and the chaotic storm. Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that everything comes, both calamity 
and blessing. But this leaves us with a troubling question. (laughs) Why? Why would God do such a thing? Why would he bring such harm and devastation even to the point that the people's ability to worship him was affected? Is he merely venting his anger? Why did he do this? Well, that answer to that question is in verses 13 to 20. As we go from the intensity of God's correction to the intention of God's correction. From verse 13, we see a shift. There's a shift in what Joel is doing. He, he was describing in detail the effects of the plague and the devastation on the land and how they should respond in terms of mourning. But then he turns his attention in verse 13 as to what they should do. And to do that, he first addresses the priests. Now, he talked about the priests earlier in verse 9, but here he has a specific task that he wants them to do. And he tells them first through a series of short commands that they need to tie on sackcloth. They too need to demonstrate and wear uh, the cloth of one who is in sorrow and mourning and is uh, penitent. Then he tells them that they are to keep that on all night. That they are to go to the temple and that they are to cry out to the Lord on their behalf and on behalf of the people all night in that sackcloth. Stuff's itchy, by the way. It's goat hair. Okay, it's not silk. And they were to lament and this picture that they were, is being described here that Joel is telling them to do, it's not just a picture of, of sorrow, of asking for God's mercy. It is a picture of repentance. In verse 14, the priests are told how to lead the people in repentance. As he says, consecrate a fast and gather everyone in a solemn assembly. They were to uh, refrain from eating food. Not that there was a whole lot there to eat. But they were to refrain even from eating what they had left as a means to demonstrate the conviction, as a means to show that they had a greater need at this point than eating. As hungry as I'm sure many of them were. We're going to see in the book of Jonah in a few weeks how the Ninevites, when they were brought a message of judgment, how they responded by fasting. And rather than say announce here, he says the word consecrate. It's the same word we get to make holy from. It's this idea of You need to tell the people, we need to set apart a special day, an important day, one where we're not distracted by anything else, no working, nothing. We're to all come before God at his temple, all the people, and to gather there to cry out to him. And again, that crying out wasn't just to be delivered from a physical plight, but it was also, and more importantly, to be delivered from their spiritual one. For you see, God had intended for them to see from this disaster and respond to this disaster by seeing the fact that they needed to repent. Flip over to Joel 2, verse 12. Joel 2, verse 12, where God explicitly delivers that message. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. It's the same word for repent. Return to me. With all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. So what was God's intention in bringing this plague? Why did he cause such disaster? to befall the people of Judah. Is he making them suffer just because? Is he trying to simply exact revenge to gleefully bring pain because of their wrongs for the 20 years they'd been in rebellion against God? Not in the least. God in this was showing mercy. He was showing mercy because he wanted to get their attention in any way that he could so that they would be encouraged and moved to repentance. This was not final judgment. It was correction to avoid final judgment. C.S. Lewis put it well in his book called The Problem of Pain. He said this, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If this plague did occur in the time of Joash, again, the people had been steeped in uh, idol worship and wickedness against God for two decades, just about. 
And the next generation that was growing up in the midst of this was being uh, taught by example and, and encouraged to idol worship, to immorality, to oppression, to violence. It was their way of life. And, and God had warned the people. He'd warned the Israelites through Moses back in Deuteronomy 28 that if you are to rebel and turn away from the Lord... He said, when you bring out your seed into the field and, and plant it, you will gather in little, for the locust will consume it. And he kept his word, and he brought the plague of locusts here upon the people, and he brought, it, brought them as a, a means of correction. His intention was to restore, not destroy completely. It was a chastisement from the hand of a good father, not a malevolent torturer. See, God brought it in the end so that it would help them and encourage them to respond in repentance. We see this idea in Hebrews 12. Turn over there. We've looked at this text a number of times, but I think it's one of the best descriptions of the uh, intent and intensity as well of God's correction, particularly in the life of a believer. Hebrews 12, we looked at it earlier when we, a few months ago when we were looking at um, in parenting in Ephesians 6. As we approach this Section in Hebrews 12, verse 4, we need to remember the people here that the writer was speaking to were suffering. And he says, beginning in verse 4, You've not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which you've all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Stop there for a moment. Don't miss the terms he's using here. Weary, scourging, reproof, striving, discipline. That word scourge is a strong word. It conveys physical pain. He's not speaking of a walk in the park here, but this is intense correction at times that God brings. And notice, too, that this correction comes from the hand of a caring and concerned father. He deals with us as children. And, you know, if God brought no discipline in our lives, in the lives of his children, if he brought no correction, no training, no reproof, then would he be showing us genuine love? As Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. It's not the loving parent who lets their child sin without any consequence at all. It's not the loving parent who gives their son or daughter no restraints whatsoever. It's not a loving parent who grants them complete independence, lets them do whatever they want. That's not loving at all. Not at all. For to give a child to do whatever that child wants to do, what is that going to guarantee for that child at some point? That's right. Not only are they going to bring harm to others, they're going to bring harm to themselves. In fact, they're going to destroy themselves. Proverbs 23, 13 declares, Don't hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol, from death, from hell. So correction, even when it's painful, is an act of mercy to get the child's attention, right? So that they don't stay on the path they're on and end up destroying themselves. I mean, think about this circumstance. Say you're a young mother. Your little toddler has figured out, this has happened to us, your little toddler has figured out how to open the door. You're smart enough to have one of those doors that has the latch that you just pull down, not a knob that makes it harder to get out. So they, they pull the latch, they start walking out into the street, busy street in front of your house. You're in the window doing dishes or the kitchen window, and you look out and you see your little one wandering out into, this, into the cars that are coming on. And what do you do at that point? Do you open the window? A honey, a sweetie, um, we have a little problem that's going to happen here. A honey, would you say that? No, you'd be, Johnny, get back in the house now. You know you would. Now, did you yell and scream at them because you hate their guts? You're terrified. You love them. You are so terrified, you call them back. When they come in the house, Mommy, you spoke harsh to me. <laughs> right? We, we do that out of love to rescue them. And in the same way, God will bring correction, sometimes very hard correction to us, to 
get our attention so that we don't destroy ourselves. For we are often found wandering in the street or on our way that direction. Look at verse 9 of chapter 12. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yes, it hurts. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." Beloved, God intends correction for good, that it would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And here in verse 9, he says to entrust God to do whatever he knows that we need. Accept whatever God brings to uproot sin in your life or to help you be more like Jesus Christ. You know, those of you that garden or have lawns and, you, you know, there's weeds that pop up, Right? Sometimes these weeds are pretty shallow. They're easy to pull out. Other times there are those weeds that run deep. And it takes a lot of force and effort to yank them out. Sometimes you got to bring a shovel out there and do massive damage to uproot them. And when Judah's sin ran deep, God brought a shovel to draw it out. And he'll do that for us. Old Testament scholar Charles Feinberg said, God does not willingly afflict the children of men, but by chastisements, often severe, but always purposeful. He would bring them back from the evil ways and from the pit of destruction. And if we go back to Joel 1, we'll see that this is the point of Joel's message. This is where he was heading. God sent him to tell the people not only who brought this disaster and what happened as a result of this disaster, but why? Why did this disaster come? Why did God bring it? God was using a megaphone to rouse their deaf ears, and his megaphone came in the form of billions of locusts. It came upon the land. And he brought these locusts so that the people would turn from their sin before it was too late. If you look at verse 15 of chapter Joel, this is the, the hinge of his message in chapter 1, the hinge of the message that he's giving in the entire book. It really communicates the point of why God moved him to get up and speak. For Joel says there, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Alas is a, a cry of alarm. It conveys an on, ominous tone. He's saying, yes, things are really bad right now. Look around us. We see it. It's terrible what has happened to us. Devastating. We've been crushed, ruined by this plague. But I fear a far worse destruction that's coming. I mean, picture again the scene as Joel is standing there before the devastation. And he tells them, you know, look around you, see what's happened and cry out. But it's not just a cry for relief. It is a cry to be, it's to be a cry of confession for the gravity of the sin which we have committed as a people, a sin which has brought about this destruction. And he's saying, we must do this, and God is getting our attention because a greater correction, a greater judgment actually is coming, and it will be a final one. It will be a final one. In fact, it is the same judgment that Obadiah mentioned in his book as he was speaking about Edom. It is one which both he and Joel call the day of the Lord. That is Yahweh's day, God's day. Joel describes it as a day of destruction from the Almighty. And those two words, destruction and Almighty, again, he uses a wordplay here where the words sound very similar. Destruction is the word showed. Almighty is the word Shaddai. In Yahweh's day, we might say it this way, the divine is the destroyer. And to emphasize how terrible that day will be, Joel again in verses 16 to 18 draws their attention back, say, look, look at what's happened. There's no food left. Everything's dried up. Verse 17, he describes, we have nothing left to plant, nothing in our storehouses for the future. Verse 18 says how the animals even suffer as they wander about for food and water. But see, these animals, they don't know what's going on. They don't have the capacity to understand what has actually happened, but the people do. So Joel says, consider all that has happened and turn from your sin before final judgment comes. Again, this is essentially the message of the gospel. This is what John, the 
Baptist preached and Jesus and the apostles to, that we need to repent from our sin and trust in the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of Joash and of David. We are to trust in him for salvation so that we do not suffer a fate far worse than anything that has ever happened in our lives. Many of us have suffered terrible, terrible things. Probably not to the degree that the people of Judah did in such a massive devastation, but maybe we've all suffered, we've all had tragedies, we've all experienced things. Just imagine, those are nothing in comparison to the final judgment to come. And that's Joel's point. This is bad. This is terrible. But something far worse is coming. And that's what I fear. And that's why I move to speak to you and to tell you to turn before it's too late. God knows what it takes to get our attention, and he will do anything, even bring harm, discomfort, to warn us. Some of the tragedies that have occurred in our lives or in this world are a merciful warning from God to flee the final judgment, to flee Yahweh's day of judgment. That was the point Jesus made. Someone came up to him, you remember in Luke 13, and they said, hey, Jesus, what about that? You heard that situation where Pilate mixed the blood of the Galileans with the sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and were killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Israel? Do you think that's why it happened to them? They were, they were more sinful and wicked than everyone else? He says, no. But unless you repent, you too, you likewise will perish. As we, Jesus is saying we all deserve destruction. We all are sinners that have sinned against God, right? And Joel could stand in front of the people and tell them that. Jesus could stand in front of the people and tell them that. Because all of us throughout history have sinned against God. And we've all earned death. We've earned eternal judgment. We've earned to be punished on the day of the Lord when he returns but God in his mercy will do whatever it takes to wake us up. He could just let things go, right? We could all have the greatest of lives. You know, sin has brought death, but God could say, I'm going to give everyone 120 years. They're going to have no problems, no issues, perfect health. Life will be great until they die, and then I'm going to judge them. Would you not much rather have God cry out to you along the way with his megaphone and say, wake up, turn before it's too late? Turn before judgment comes. Because God, when he brings disaster, it comes not out of cruelty, but compassion. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this. This is God speaking. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you all die, O house of Israel? That is God speaking. Judgment's coming, he says, but I don't desire, I'm not passionately uh, loving to see people that are going to be judged for eternity. It will be right. God is holy, he is just, sin is wicked, and God will bring judgment. But here we see a God that is trying to reach out and call out to us with his megaphone to say, turn before it's too late. I don't desire your death and your destruction, but I will bring it. He says also in Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. And by live here, he more, means more than just physical life. He's talking about our eternal life. For we all will live forever either with God or without him. John 10, Jesus said, I came that they might have life. And he wasn't saying that they could live more years on this earth, but that they might have life abundantly and richly. God said in Ezekiel, the way to have that life is to turn back and to repent. God says here through the prophet Joel to repent, to turn to him. And next week, We'll see and look at what does that repentance that God requires and desires look like? And how does that have, implication, have implications for the life of the believer? But for today, let's heed Joel's message and look at it again. Remember at the very beginning, the importance of this message. He says it's, God's, it's so important 
that we cannot let our children forget. We must teach them and encourage them to pass it on to their children and to their children in the next generation. Brothers and sisters, we need to teach our children not just how God blesses. We also need to teach them about suffering. Teach them and warn them before it is too late. And we must do the same as well. This message must be brought to a lost world. That Jesus, you know, his response to natural disasters in Luke 13, I think we, it bears us to study that and to look at it so that we would respond rightly to our world and the tragedies that take place so that we could be encouraging people to be right with the Lord, with their sovereign and good creator, and to worship him and to come seeking forgiveness from his son, a forgiveness he freely desires and will give to any who come genuinely confessing their sins and placing their trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, this is a strong message you brought Lord, a strong message that you first brought through a plague of locusts and then raised up your prophet Joel to tell the people why that happened and, and Lord, how it took such a terrible plague to get their attention, that the, the root of sin in their lives had run deep. Lord, thank you for not abandoning them but calling out to them and thank you, Lord, for calling out to us, each of us and various circumstances in our lives where you brought your message of salvation and hope in Jesus Christ. And I pray, oh Lord, that we would be fervent in spreading that message and proclaiming it to others. Lord, because your day is coming. Your day is coming. Father, may we live in light of that. And Lord, we rejoice that one day all things will be made new and right and at the same time recognize that, that your day also means final judgment and Lord may we go with compassion and love and let people know that you are returning thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to worship you in joy and gladness Lord our hearts are not dried up because you have or filled them by your spirit with joy in knowing you and I just thank you Lord that we can sing to you that we can pray to you and that we can hear your word and look to it for instruction and God I pray that you would continue to move in us as we go through your your prophets Lord that spoke many years ago but still speak today we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ amen